welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Pastor Steve of Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the comforting Holy Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to Pastor Steve. So today we are coming back to foundation stones. I was, I was gone. I was chomping at the bit all week to get back to you, get back to what we're doing here. I have never been so thrilled to do a series as what we've been doing here with this. Because every time I go into some place, I realize like, <gasps> now that I've opened that door, I get to actually go in this room with my beloved family and now we can, we can unpack some of these things that are in there. Because I don't know if you realize this, but I've kind of put a pinky toe in some of your guys' rooms and there are boxes for days. Some of you are hoarders. <laughs> and we need to clean out some rooms. Amen. And part of building a good foundation is you got to clear out the stuff in order to have a good solid foundation on things. And so I've been going through this and it's even been good for me because sometimes I get stuff attached to my life. I'm not as perfect as most of you think I am. Amen. I just, I just confess to the prayer circle this morning that on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, the day of Thanksgiving, that morning, I had a flesh flash in the kitchen with my bride. Yep, for all of you that had me on whatever pedestal you had me on, you can take me right on back down. I'm just like you. I, do, I have the same temptations, I have the same stress, I got the same stuff that comes at me as every one of you. And I had a flesh flash, and I had to spend three days repenting to Jesus, and repenting to my bride, and repenting to my kitchen. And they all forgave me. <laughs> So I'm clean, I'm washed. I'm washed in the blood of covenant and I'm good. But I, there are still things in me that I gotta get worked out. So anybody sitting in here thinking like, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that, yeah, yeah, that's fun, yeah, yeah, move on, Steve. Let's, let's get to something really deep. Uh, you probably have never read the Gospels. <laughs> Jesus had every opportunity. You know, he could have talked about quantum physics. If anybody knows about quantum physics, Jesus knows about quantum physics. And he talked about loving your neighbor. So you really want to know what the deep thing is? Lord, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? Oh, Peter, <laughs> you're so pretty. It's 70 times seven, bucko. But like in a lifetime? No, in a day, buddy. 70 times seven in a day. What? 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 And then, and then the disciples said, this is so hilarious. The disciple says, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> it was the only time, literally the only time. He, he sends them out. Go read Luke 9. He sends the 12 out. And he literally tells them in Luke 9, I want you to go out there. I want you to take no money. Don't even take a backup coat. And I want you to heal the sick. And I want you to preach the kingdom. I want you to cast out demons. I want you to do everything I'm doing. And I want you to do it with no resources whatsoever. Now go. And they, they all took off like good little sheep. And they did what their shepherd told them to do. And guess what happened? They did all that. 
And they came back and they testified to him like, Lord, we did all this great stuff. And he's like, uh-huh. And then the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, he gets 70 more guys. And he brings them together. He says, hey, you guys go do what the 12 just did. And you know what the 70 said? Night. Word. And they went out and did it. And then they came back and he's like, and one of them actually walks up to the Lord. He's like, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he's like, of course they are. But don't rejoice over the fact that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. He, he made the perspectives right. You know, he sent 12 disciples out to do the exact same things that he was doing. And then he sent 70 other, like, backup disciples. He sent them out to do the exact same thing that he was doing, including probably raising the dead. If anybody, if you've ever actually cast a demon out of a demon-possessed person, you need to be settled. I, and there's not just demons in Africa and Pakistan and all these other places. There's demons in America. We just medicate them. We just give them psychedelic drugs, and we hope that they, they don't freak us out too bad. But there's just as many demons here as there is anywhere else. And I would honestly say there's more because we attract them. If you've never stood in front of a demon-possessed person, like literally manifesting that demon, and you've taken authority over that demon and cast them out, then you're not really correlating what the 12 went through and what the 70 went through. And neither one of those instances did the disciples ever say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. But Jesus told the disciples to forgive 70 times 7, and the immediate response was, Lord, increase our faith. You know what's harder than casting out a demon? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And most Christians don't do both. They wouldn't cast a demon out. They'd call me. And they weren't going to forgive. Because that person deserves me to be mad at them. You know what they did to me? You know how many times I've talked to someone in my office and I said, you need to learn to let that go. You need to learn to release that offense. You have got to forgive that. And they say, you know what they've done to me? You know what they did to me 27 years ago? Do you know what they did? And almost every single time I say, do you know what they did to Jesus? Like, thank God Jesus got over it. It's important for us to get over it. Part of that is us living in a covenant culture. A culture of covenant. There's something about the shedding of blood that really gets you. I grew up with three brothers. Pray hard for my mother. We were as boy as boy could be. If we couldn't break it or kill it or blow it up, then we didn't need it. We were, we were wheels off as boys. And um, it, was, it was great from our perspective, but I can imagine our, our parents, God bless them. Mom has got more grace than any of you will ever possibly imagine. And we could kill stuff. You know, you'd, I'd shot... I don't even, I've lost track of the number of things I've killed with, even with BB guns. You know, you can kill rabbits and squirrels and 
I won't name other things with BB guns. You didn't know they had the power until you popped something. <laughs> Look at there, got it. I know all of you are looking at me terrible right now. I was a kid and I had a BB gun and they didn't shoot my eye out. And that doesn't include the amount of blood that us brothers have shed with each other. I will, uh, one of the things that's etched in my memory, and I pray that none of my brothers watch this YouTube, but they'll get over it if they do. We were, we were home alone, who knows, mom was working and dad was wherever dad was. And so we were home alone. And I think Todd, my oldest brother, was in charge of watching us that day. And me and me and Tim, which is my little brother, we were banging around and doing whatever it is little brothers do together and having a good time. And, um, you know, everything always ends up in a fight, you know, a wrestle, you know, fake fight or a real fight. At some point, it's if you got boys, that's how it always ends up. And so me and Tim got into whatever. And Todd just wasn't having it today. Like this was not he had stuff to do instead of monitor me and Tim get into our fight. And so he came over and he did whatever. And I think he jerked me off of Tim. And when he did that, he spun around and he popped Tim right in the nose. And it just like sprung a leak. I mean, it was like blood just gushing out of his nose. <laughs> and Tim's bleeding. And he probably, Todd probably grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. So I probably got marks on me too. We were just fighting. And so I'm probably bleeding, and Tim's got a gusher going on, and Todd's in, and he goes, if either of you two get blood on the carpet, Dad's going to whoop you. <laughs> well, now we were crying, <laughs> because before we were just hurting. But now we're like, we're going to extend the hurt until when Dad gets home, because gonna, Todd's going to tell him, we got blood on the carpet. He's not going to tell him how the blood got on the carpet, or who got us bloody to put the blood on the carpet. But we were really familiar with blood. All my life, I could clean stuff, I could kill stuff, I could get a bloody nose, I could give a bloody nose. No problem. And when my wife gave birth to my daughter, that was different. That was much different. That wasn't a couple of boys playing around popping a nose. That was the birth of my daughter. And when I was, when Kay was given birth, long story short, the doctor had to cut her. And the doctor almost died because I went after him. Just it was just reflex, because I'm doing my, you know, you got the two halves of your wife, if anybody's ever seen it. You got like this, you got the bottom half that's below the curtain, and then you got the top half that's above the curtain. And, and the doctor did this, and I went after the doctor, and two nurses grabbed me and said, how are you supposed to do that? He's just trying to get the baby out. I'm like, you don't do that to a person's wife. And I went up to the top, and I'm like, baby, I'm sorry. Because like, that's my job is to protect her from getting hurt. And she's like, sorry for what? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever's in your IV is working, baby. Work it. <laughs> so I went on. But I remember that moment because that was, that was real blood. My daughter was given to me 
from the sacrifice of real blood. Later on, Gunner's born and he's a little dude. He's probably two. And we were in our house in Texas and we had this stupid little fish bowl with one of these, what are they called, fighting fish or something like that. That, Yeah, whatever. And, <laughs> and this, you know, these fish, anyway, I'm not gonna go there. So we had this fish bowl on the table and Gunner was leaning up against the, the arm of the chair. And we had a leather chair. And so he was leaning up against the arm of the chair and he was watching this fish swim. For the life of me, I have no idea why that's exciting, but kids love to do it. So he was watching this fish swim and whatever happened, he slipped. And he went face first into that fish bowl and shattered the fish bowl and came up and I was in another room and Kay was in the living room, that's where it happened. And I was in another room and I heard the the siren. <laughs> and I, I knew the siren, like, you know, neither of my kids have ever been like criers or complainers or anything, they've, been, they've both been incredible kids. There was a joy to raise our kids. And I knew that this was something. And so I started heading there and Kay, is like in a state of shock, mom shock, with Gunner kind of heading towards her and he's got four or five pieces of glass, huge pieces of glass sticking out of his face and blood everywhere. And, and I'm like, Ugh. and he's going towards Kay because every wise child goes towards their mother in a moment like that. And Kay is like, ah, ah. and I'm like, all right, you stop. You quit crying. So, so I took Gunner and I chilled him out and I took Kay and I chilled her out. I'm like, I got this. This was like management time. And I got everything all together. I said, okay, Hannah, go get the shoes. You know, we're going to go to the hospital. We're going to get the glass out of Gunner's face. We're gonna, and I started just managing. I was, I was doing dad management in this moment. And Kay's like, ah. I'm like, you just get in the car. We'll be fine. He'll survive. He had glass that literally surrounded. He still got a scar, I think. Now he's still, and he had glass that surrounded it. It never went into his eye. Praise Jesus. Amen. And I drove 127 miles an hour over to the, uh, in a Sienna minivan, literally 120 miles an hour in a Sienna. You didn't know a Sienna would do 120, did you? I'll tell you how, all fast, how fast all of your guys' cars go if you give me a chance. And we went in their emergency room and, and the doctors rushed him right in. I mean, like it looked like he'd like been shot in the face with a shotgun. And they got him in there and um, the doctors are doing their thing. They're, they're trying to get the glass and, and stuffing things. And they had to papoose him. Some of you know what that means. A papoose is where they wrap you up in like basically like a straitjacket because Gunner was not having it. He was two or three years old. Like, this is not okay. My face is all jacked up, cut up. There's glass in my face and you guys are poking and prodding in all the places that hurt. He was not okay with this. He was furious. And I get it. I'd, I'd have been furious too. And so he's fighting them and, uh, you know, that's going to make it worse. I mean, he's got glass like one millimeter from his eyeball and they're trying to do all this stuff. And finally, they have to papoose him and strap him down. And they are, they are going, 
The doctor is literally squeezing all around his face, looking to see if he can find any chunks of glass that he missed. After, And I'm looking at my son. And his eyes are telling me, why are you not stopping this torture? And he's bleeding. And he is fighting so hard. He broke every blood vessel in his face. His face literally was black and blue after that ordeal because he was fighting that papoose so hard to try to stop them from hurting him. And he's looking at me with this look. You're my dad. This is your job to protect me from the pain. And the blood in that moment and all the things that were going on. And they got him sorted and I literally took a step back. And I have never in my life since or before have ever had this happen, but I lost it. Like I got nauseated, I got lightheaded, I got hat flashes, I was sweating, like every, I don't know what was wrong with me. Shock or something, just watching this moment. And I stuck back and the doctor's like, dad, dad? And I was, and, ba and Kay's like, baby, I got this. Go get some air. And so me and Hannah, I took Hannah out, and she was, she, I don't know what she was thinking about these moments either. So I took Hannah, and we went outside the hospital, and we walked around the parking lot four or five times, and I got my breath and got my, and I came back into the, finally got myself together, came back into the room, and Kay was like white as a ghost, and she's like, uh, I'm like, oh, you need to go too. <laughs> and she went and did the same thing. And I never really realized it, but there's a difference in blood. The blood of popping my little brother in the nose because he popped off is blood. It's whatever. The blood of the birth of my daughter was much different blood. And the blood of my hurting son, my tortured son, was much different blood. Covenant is blood. The word covenant means the cut where blood flows. And this is why most people's Christianity is really not that strong. There are people in this room, and I'm not picking on you, and I'm not naming names, and I don't even know if I know who you are, but there are people in this name, in this room, that your Christianity is so shallow that within 48 hours, you could walk away. The right circumstances, the right problems, the right mess, the right doctor's reports, the right whatever, they could all come at you and in 48 hours you could walk away because there's no blood. I can't walk away from Gunner. I can't walk away from Hannah. There's blood. And we've never really gotten here in the new covenant because Jesus was the one that shed the blood and so therefore we don't have to. And because of it, he's way more committed to the covenant than we are. And I want to cut you today. I want to cut you. And I want the blood to flow today. And I want you to realize what Jesus is inviting you into is not a religion. It's not churchianity. It's not feel good, ear tickling. Uh, hope you got something out of this. What I'm inviting you into is covenant. And it's going to hurt to get cut. 
but you can't get covenant any other way. There has to be blood. This seal right here is very reminiscent of the New Testament words when you say, when, when it uses the term sealed. This would have been wax, hot wax that they dripped on something and then there would have been an insignant ring or there would have been something they used to stamp that this was sealed. That was representative of what it used to be, which was the blood of the people that wrote down the vows of the covenant. After the covenant was cut between two people, they would cut themselves and the blood would flow. They would hold their hands together and that blood would flow down each other's arms. This is where we get high fives from, just so you know. Almost everything in our society has its roots in some kind of covenant aspect. Shaking hands, where do you think shaking hands came from? Covenant. This is my hand cut with blood linked with your hand cut with blood. 50 years ago, you could do million dollar business deals on a handshake because it meant something. Now you can shake a hand while of the person while you're cheating them. The blood would flow at, while they held their hands together and blood would flow from the person I got into covenant with into my veins and my blood would flow into their veins. This is where marriage comes from, where the changing of the names, because now there's not a Steve Castle. Now there's not a Kay Borgman. Now there is a Mr. and Mrs. Steve Castle. It's something that never existed before. I wasn't Mr. Steve Castle before that, trust me. I was 20. <laughs> After that, we were Mr. and Mrs. Steve Castle. We created a family lineage, a bloodline, a DNA that never existed before. And now we have fruit of it. Fruit would have never been here if it wouldn't have been for the covenant. Our blood was mingled and we created a new bloodline, a new name. You have a new name. Ephesians chapter 3 says that you are name, the name that you actually now have is the same name of the family of God on earth and in heaven. That, that covenant activity of that blood after the end of those two covenant representatives held their hands together and they let the blood flow into each other's veins, they would both separate their hands and then they would squeeze their hands over the parchment where the vows were written down. Whatever the vow was of that covenant, me, Smith family are going to provide uh, metalworks for you, a carpenter family. You're going to provide uh, woodworks for us. And so now we're in covenant together. And both of them, they would squeeze the blood onto that table. And then the new insignia, the new, you know, you've seen these shields and family crests and all that kind of stuff that's kind of repopularized. We're just... We don't have anything of our own, so we just have to steal and manipulate all the other stuff. Just like this generation, they don't have their own movies, they don't have their own music, they had to steal all of ours and call it cool. <sighs> we had Star Star Wars is our version. What you guys got, anyway, you bled 
together and then the new crest, the new family seal, the new insignia of that new family that was just formed was pressed into that blood to make the mark to tell everyone that this covenant was made and sealed in blood. Sealed in blood. You do not understand the book of Revelation with the seven seals until you understand what I just said. It is not seven progressive things that happen over the course of seven different years or three and a half years. I don't even, I'm not even going to go there. These are the seals of Jesus' own blood that are being broken. There's a lot more going on there than just end times and the left behind series. <clears throat> that seal, that covenant is what we are all called to be in. God didn't invite you into a religion. The world's filled with religions. He doesn't need another one of those. Jesus didn't come to start that. He came to do covenant. And ever since the new covenant, ever since the, the birth, the resurrection, the birth, the atonement, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, people have started to understand what real liberty, what real covenant is all about. We even call it the new covenant. Your Bible is divided into two, the old covenant and the new covenant. The Old Testament, will and testament, the new will and testament. And our founding fathers of this nation understood these principles and the liberty that they built this nation on was based on these truths. They didn't just get bored one day and go, hey, you know, there's some open dirt over there in North America. Y'all want to go start a nation? Yeah, ain't got nothing better going on. Let's go do it. That was totally the opposite. They were... The pilgrims, those of you that understand Thanksgiving, who haven't been wokeified by today's society, if you haven't gone to university, God bless you, because the real story is there were people that were being religiously persecuted because they just wanted to love and serve God. They just wanted to have the kingdom of God be a part of their life, be a part of their family, be a part of the way that they, that they lived their lives, and they were persecuted by Government after government after government all over Europe. They would flee from one government and the next government would get them and they would persecute them and the next government would get them and persecute them. So finally, the pilgrims decided to leave and go to the new land. And at least there they'd be left alone so they could worship God freely and in peace. And if you think I'm making up U.S. history, I'm going to show you the next uh, this is a picture of what's called the Mayflower Compact. This, this is, I don't even want to talk about the picture, but this is one of those times that a picture is worth a thousand years. You can see the diversity of the people that came to this land, that started this nation. This is the Mayflower Compact. So these were the people that were on the Mayflower. Those of you that had good history, U.S. history teaching. You remember the Mayflower was one of the ships that left that had pilgrims on it who were fleeing to try to find some place where they could have religious liberty. That was the point, religious liberty. 
And they, while they were on the ship headed to the new land, they wrote what was called the Mayflower Compact, which was the first governing document that was ever established on North American shores. In what you and I call America, this is the first document of government that we have ever had in this nation. And it's called the Mayflower Compact. And right here, the Mayflower Compact is all written out here. And you can go, if you want a copy of these slides, I'll give them to you so you don't have to worry about getting them. But I want to just highlight a couple of places in this Mayflower Compact that you'll understand what the foundations were of the nation that you are part of. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Anybody that's told you that this country was founded by secularists or deists or, or anti-Christian or who, who, whatever they've come up with. They, they keep coming up with new speculations about what the foundations of our countries are. Let me tell you what the foundations of our country are based upon a document written in 1620 on a boat having undertaken for the glory of God the advancement of the Christian faith. They came here for the glory of God and to advance the Christian faith. They were willing to die. Half of everybody on this boat died, either in transit to get here or they died the first winter when they got here because they were ill-prepared. Half of them died. They were more committed to advancing their Christianity than most people in this room. If I told you the only way for you to advance your Christianity is for you and your family to go on a trip that would likely kill half your family, you would tell me to stick it. They were way more committed to their Christian faith than the average churchianity person today. And because of it, we have a nation that has these kind of foundations that God is going to honor. The next line that I got in red there is, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together. They knew what covenant meant. They knew it meant blood. And they were still willing to do it. We've given up on this. I, there's, there, there could be people in this room that you don't have enough fingers to count the number of churches that you've been a part of in your life. Which means not one of them was ever a covenant. Not one time did you ever have a covenant spiritual family. Not once. They had it. And they didn't even have a steeple and a bell. They were committed to each other. They were committed to establishing something to the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith if it cost them their lives, and it did. And they were still willing to do it. In Acts chapter 1, this is after the Lord's resurrection. In fact, this is the Lord in his resurrected status speaking to his disciples the 11 that remained, because you do remember that one of the covenant guys gave up the covenant. He traded his covenant for 30 pieces of silver. Now, if one out of 12 in Jesus' church couldn't hang in there, now you know why we got what's going on in our world today. We don't have the level of commitment 
that we are supposed to have that the Lord requires, that the Lord desires. You heard me say it before, I'm going to repeat it. I hate quitters. I hate quitters. Don't ever quit. Ever. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be in relationship with the same people for 10 million years. God can, can develop different relationships and all that kind of stuff. I get all that. But don't ever quit. Don't ever quit. In Acts chapter 1, the Lord was talking to the 11 that remained, and he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Just so you know, this is one of my favorite eschatological statements of the Lord. Eschatology is the study of the end times. If you want to know what I believe about the end times, this verse is going to come up. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ saying, I don't know how this could be any clearer. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority about the end times. And we have a million preachers writing a million books about when the end times is and exactly how it's going to play out. And I just wonder if they have a Bible. Because this has been in my Bible since the first day I read it. It is not for us to know. You know what that means? It's not that complex, y'all. It's not for you to know. So what are you supposed to do? Occupy today until he returns. <laughs> there's so many, there's preachers. This is so famous right now. There are preachers that will take the headlines of the paper on Saturday about whatever's happening in the world, conflict, especially, man, all these people's feelers have got all prickly and, and they've got goosebumps on top of their duck bumps because Israel is at war with all the Arab nations. So obviously this is it. This is the end time. This is the end of the end of the end of the end time. This is Revelation chapter 13. We're doing it. Mark of the beast. Here we go. Like you do know that the nation of Israel is a political conglomeration created by the UN. That's not the actual covenant people of God. And these preachers are preaching their little hearts out. Uh, Again, because they did it in 1948, and then they did it in 1970, whenever that war was. It, it is, it's over and over and over, and you know what the Christians do? Oh, okay, well, this was the real one. So the other 27 were the real ones until they weren't. It is not for us to know the times or the seasons. If this was my Bible, this would be in red. I think Jesus knows what he's talking about. Don't, don't be paying attention to all this and trying to figure out what the end times are based upon what leaders doing what and what national, political, geopolitical country. God wants you to pay attention to what your call is right now, the Great Commission, the people around you, love your neighbor, love God, do the things that you're called to do. He'll work out the end times. Promise you, Scout's honor. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. Now, this is Jesus. This is the only place in all of Scripture that I can figure out that there's a secret that the Father keeps from the Son. And they're one. I don't even know how to parse that. But whatever it is, Jesus submitted to it. All right, Father, that's on you. I'm, I'm good with that. 
Jesus is actually good with the Father controlling the end time events. Why aren't we? But you, notice he turned his back on you. It ain't for you to know about end times. Let's get this back to where you're supposed to do. You. This is typical Jesus. People walk up to him. You know, Lord, uh, tell, us about, uh, tell us about how, uh, tell us about what the government's doing. And he said, you need to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and you render unto God what is God. They tried to drag him into some kind of political conversation about money and all that kind of stuff, just like the woman at the well. He walks up to her and he says, you know, give me something to drink. I'm thirsty. And she said, well, why would you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan? This is not supposed to be done. And then Jesus says, you know, if you had asked me, I'd give you living water. And starts to get into the evangelism of the moment. And then the woman tries to change the subject. Well, you Jews say that we're supposed to be uh, worshiping in Jerusalem at the temple. But the Samaritans, my kinfolk, say we're supposed to be worshiping over here on this mountain. Which one is it? And Jesus, like, almost basically ignores her and brings it back to her. He says, uh, go get your husband. Uh, I don't have one. And he said, well said. You don't have one because you've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. That's, by the way, that's Jesus' statement on shacking up versus being married. Amen. Let me get back to this. That was not okay. But you will receive power. He brings it back to them. You will receive power. They wanted knowledge about the end times. He wanted them to have power. Which one do you want? You want to figure out the end times or do you want power? I, I want power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Now, when I was in Bible college, we didn't, we weren't being witnesses. We were doing witnesses. I, I led an outreach when I was in Bible college, and we'd go downtown Tarrant, Tarrant, uh, to the Tandy Center in downtown Fort Worth, and we would go around because they had projects around there, and there was always homeless people and drunks and drug addicts and all that kind of stuff down there. And so we would go down there and we would do witnessing. We'd go witnessing. And we'd witness to all these people. And, you know, if it was a really good night, we'd take like 50 scalps, you know, get them and woo, 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 they said the prayer. And we'd come back and we'd all like, yay, we, we led 50 people to Jesus. 50 people got born again. 50 people got saved. Never did it dawn on my lightning fast 22-year-old mind that maybe some of those people were just saying words that I wanted them to say so I would shut up. I know. God bless me. And we would do witnessing. We would go witnessing all the time because that was our outreach. And I remember one day reading this. You ever read the Bible and it's like the first time you read it? Yes. Okay, well, I had one of those when I read this one time. And this is talking about being a witness, not doing witnessing. Well, wait a minute. That's, that's contrary to my Bible college outreach. What do you mean be a witness? And then I did the really crazy thing of actually looking up the word witness. Well, I wonder what this means. Does this mean having people go through the Romans road and say the magical prayer that gets them automatically born again? So I looked up the word witness. 
Martyrius. Martyrius? Man, that sounds pretty familiar. Oh, martyr. What? What? Wait, what? Lord. I know you. I know. I know you're. Your Lord and all that, but you don't really want me to be a martyr. I know mom named me Stephen, but that was just for, that was just for giggles. It was a great, great name. Sounded cool. I didn't want to really be a dead guy. I'd rather go and do witnessing than be a martyr. Well, if you want power, you have to be a martyr. Be a martyr. So here's the thing. If you are not currently a martyr, then today you can be one. This doesn't mean die physically right now. That's weird. This means dying to yourself. This means you actually are dead to who you were. You have died as old people, and now you are living as the new version of you in Christ. If you're not a witness, if you're not a martyr, you are not his yet. Anyone that does not have the spirit of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, is none of his. And there's a lot of people, and they can tell you about the cool things in Scripture. They can, they can walk you through some, some moral principles. They can even be good people. But they have never actually died with Christ on that cross. They have never martyred themselves and become one of the people that have that have needed resurrection life for them to live. As long as you're living under your power and your life, you don't need his. And you can't add his to yours. You're either doing life by your power or you're doing life by his power. You don't get to add them together. There's no mingling. You don't put old wine and new wine together. You don't put sweet water and salt water together. You're either doing your life, your way, with your power, or you're doing his life, his way, with his power. I know that's tight, but it's right. Luke 22, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which was broken, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the same way, the cup after they had eaten said, this cup that is poured out for you, that is poured out for you, this cup that is poured out, my blood shed all over Calvary is the new covenant. Jesus loved you so much. Jesus wanted to be in covenant with you so much that he shed every drop of his blood to do that for and with you. And then we come into this relationship and we don't want to give any blood. I wouldn't say that it's a covenant. 
there's a reciprocal aspect to being in covenant that most Christians don't understand. This guy is called Tertullian. Tertullian was one of the church fathers. He lived around 200 AD. And one of his famous quotes is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed for the church. Now we know that because Jesus was the original blood that seeded the church. And in 200 AD, they were killing Christians as quick as they were making them. Because it was not okay to be a Christian in Rome in 200 AD. The blood of the martyrs were seeding the church. And every time they killed another martyr, you know what it did? Inspired others. Why? Because if it was willing enough for someone to die for it, then they needed to figure out what it was. We haven't given people the same insignias. We haven't shown them the same thing. We're not willing to die for Christian morality. We're not willing to die for our commitment to Christ. We're not even, some people aren't even willing to drive through the snow. And we think we're going to inspire others with what we live, what we do, how we look at these things. There's people that are more committed to the Packers than they are to Christ. But one of my friends just shared a, a picture with me on Facebook. He literally tagged me in this picture because it was a picture of about 20 people sitting in the stands and they were completely covered in snow watching a football game. And he said to me, and this was a Christian-ish person, and they said to me, he said, would anybody in your congregation sit through this to hear you preach? And I responded, nope. Those people, those modern progressive Americans were more willing to be persecuted and suffer for the worship of the Packers than the average Christian is to worship Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, if these chairs aren't just the right amount of comfy, if we don't have the temperature right in here, if the sound just ain't right in here, we've had people quit the church. I can show you emails from people who have quit this church over everything I just said. Chairs, someone sat in my spot. I don't like the lights. You know, why'd you, why'd you do the, the different music stuff? It's too loud. It's too quiet. Oh, you, you quit the church. Yep. Would you go to a Packers game? Yep. Sit in that snow and freeze my toes off. I'll lose a pinky toe for the Packers. The common thread of the Mayflower Compact, the soldier's oath of service, the new covenant and the confession of faith for the believer is the basis in the covenant. All of the veterans in the room, this is going to bless you. If you're not a veteran, please listen to why you should honor your veterans. This is the oath of enlistment. This is in my pocket constitution. If anybody needs a free pocket constitution, we will give you one. No problem. The oath of enlistment is, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, 
and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the uniform code of military justice. So help me God. If there's a veteran in the room, they said this. And just so you know, these words, you go and ask one of them. These words don't die the moment they leave the military. These words live in them. This was a covenant. This was a vow. And many soldiers vowed this and shed the blood that was necessary for this vow to be consecrated in their heart. Our veterans are probably more committed to that flag and to this constitution than the average Christian in this room is to Christ. That's new. In most of you, in most of modern history, in the last 2,000 years, usually the conversion to Christianity came with it the threat of death. And because we no longer have that threat, we live in super cushy, comfy, posh, nobody can hurt me or tell me anything to do in America. I can be a Christian. I can, in fact, I can be a Christian in America today and I can even decide what version of Christianity I'm going to live. I'm going to pick all the parts I like. I'm going to throw out all the parts I don't like. And that's how I'm going to live. And nobody can tell me what to do. Definitely not stupid preachers. That guy, I'll decide what part of his sermons I like and I don't. I don't care if it's inspired by the Spirit of God. Who's he to tell me what to do? The common thread that these folks had was that they knew that they were making vows. The Mayflower Compact, the oath, the, off, the, the oath of service of the enlisted man and woman. They knew that what they were saying could lead to their death. And so they did not take these vows rashly. We need to be a covenant people so that our vows are not rash and our vows are followed through on. <clears throat> and then in the, in the early church, they were willing to suffer and die because God was the witness of the vow. And he, his life, his blood was going to ratify the commitment. Jesus wants your yea to be yea. And then he will give you the power to keep it in faith. He just needs your commitment. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is right, the next chapter right after the Shema. So these are really powerful places in scriptures. If you haven't studied these out, I would, I would strongly exhort you to go and do that. And there's going to be two words that are going to be, that I've got highlighted here, which is covenant, which is bereath in the Hebrew. Bereath. And it, it means alliance. And then there's the other one, which is C-H-E-C-E-D, but the way it's pronounced is chased. And you got you to do that. Which everybody loves about Hebrew. You know, when this is a, you don't, you don't have too many close talkers when you're Hebrew. Like, how are you? <laughs> Say it, don't spray it. This, this chased, this is throughout the scriptures. There's 
uh, almost 200 times in the Old Testament. This is a huge, huge hyperlink, huge hyperlink to a quality and a virtue of God. And I'm going to show you how this plays out. This is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a covenantal book. This is part of the Torah. The, the uh, Hasidic Jews actually look at the Torah as if it is literally God. They literally worship the Torah as if it's God. And these are some of the, these are some of the most powerful parts of the Torah. This is Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. You know, when I was young, some of you will know this, I was a teenager, I was probably 14 or 15 years old, and there was, uh, there was a guy in Forreston that would take me and a couple other people from Forreston, they'd take us over to New Covenant, that's now Crossroads Church, and the, take us to the youth group at New Covenant. And I had a youth group leader at New Covenant whose name was John Eastlick. Anybody know that name? John Eastlick is still today is one of my best friends. And John Eastlick told me when I was a 14 or 15-year-old kid, he said one time, in his John Eastlick way, he said, Steve, let me tell you something that you need to remember for the rest of your life. Okay, John, tell me. He said, there is one God, and you ain't him. And he was right. Not only was he right that that was important for the rest of my life, but he was also right that I needed to know that. There's one God, and you ain't him. If, if I just shocked you, it's okay. You'll get through it. You'll survive. You're not a God. You, you weren't born one. You're not going to die one. God is going to adopt you into his family. You're going to be part of the divine family, but you ain't going to be God. And every time that God says, hey, you should do it this way, and you say, nah, I'm going to do it this way, that's you saying, I'm God, you're not. I would exhort you to not live that way. It's not going to end well. Not going to end well. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. I just love it. The Bible's like, hey, very clear. They don't do it the American way, like, hey, how are you today? Love your hair. Is that a new Sunday outfit? So anyway, you should probably listen to God. He's kind of smart. No, the Bible says, hey, you need to know, there's God, one God. Amen. Okay, check. Now, people in past times, they would be okay with that. Thank you for telling me the truth. Thank you for making it really clear. Now I can move on to the next truth. But in today, it's like, eh, can you give that to me in another way? Can you put some sugar on it? Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his barith. He keeps his barith. He keeps his covenant of loving devotion. So he keeps his barith of chased. Loving devotion. This word chased is, is such a unique word. There is no English word that translates. None. There is none. When I was a little kid, we had to read the King James because that was like the only Bible that was existing. You know, that's the one that Jesus read. That's the one he preached out of. And so we had to read the King James Bible, and that, that was it. And I remember reading when I was a little kid, reading through the King James Bible, and you'd see, in, especially in the Psalms a lot, you would see this word, loving kindness. One word, one big fat word, loving kindness. 
And you'd, and you'd read that as a little kid, and you're like, what the, who's writing words? This is where I learned how to invent my own words. I got it from the King James, so all of you that are upset with me overdoing that. They, because there was no English word. And so they took loving and kind and the quality of ness that's added to that, and they jammed it all together, and they said, this is about as close as we can come in one word to making you understand hasad. And there's allegiance to it, there's loyalty to it, there's, there's uh, long-suffering to it, there's all these things that are associated to hasad that the average Jewish person reading their Torah, they would hit this word and they'd go, ah, oh, that's this whole thing. This massive hyperlink of ideas. And then you add to it this massive other hyperlink of covenant. Because God is the one that created covenant. Man created contract. We couldn't do covenant, so we had to sissify it. So we got the limp-wristed version of covenant, which we call contract, and then we got real covenant, which is what God invented. God invented covenant. In covenant, there's this huge hyperlink, and then in hased, there's this huge hyperlink. And so when God says he is faithful, who keeps his barith hased? Nearly any Jewish person would have read that and like, whoa, that is huge. Those two together, we call this believing loyalty. These things happen so often together in Scripture that there's actually theological terminology that's applied to it. It's called believing loyalty, or it's called believing faith, or loyal allegiance, a, a trusting allegiance. There's a lot of different terminology that goes in there, but they're literally connected together. This is where we get salvation from. It's believing for the rest of your life. It's not a moment of belief. It's believing in infinity. And it's being committed to that belief. For a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments, but those who hate him, he repays them to their face with destruction. You know, we take that out of our modern Bibles. Like, God ain't going to roll that way. He's not going to reward the people that are in barith, hased with him, and give them love and devotion and, and mercy and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, he's not going to make sure that the people that are wicked that are violating covenant with him, that are, that are contrary to him. He would never hold them accountable for all that. I know that we think this. How many people go and have mass shootings and then shoot themselves and think that they're getting out of some kind of judgment? No, they just ushered themselves into judgment. How many people think, I just watched a little video on social media, and it was a guy, I don't know who it was, he obviously was a huge popular guy because this thing had like a million views, and it was a dude doing an interview, and he said, let me tell you something, and it, was, it must have been something about marriage or relationships or something, and he said, let me tell you something, there isn't a man that I know that if he knew that he could get away with it, sleeping with another woman, that there would never be a consequence, that his wife would never find out, that there would never happen, anything would ever happen to him. There isn't a man that I know that wouldn't do it. There isn't a man I know. And I said, well, you don't know me. But he was talking about the fact that this is the society that we live in. The only thing that is consequential to us is something that we're going to reap consequences of in the present tense. 
We don't even consider this. You start breaking covenant and then your health starts falling apart. And people are like, ah. You know, there's no way that my health falling apart. There's no, there's no way that me being sick for two years has to do with the fact that I'm not honoring my spouse. No, of course not. That would be silly. That would be like spiritual. You, you don't think your health is not connected to your spiritual life? You know how many times the word covenant, Bob just did it this morning. You know how many times the word covenant is within five or six words of prosperity? It's like 20 times. I've looked it up before. It's like 20 times. This means that your finances are directly connected to your spiritual life. Directly. And I will tell you that you bring up 100 Christians and 95 of them would say, nope, nope, it has to do with your job and whatever investments you made and whether your parents were rich or not. Directly. Directly. And we don't think these things are true. God will make sure that there's a balancing of the books. The evil are going to get what's coming to them. Promise you. And the righteous are going to get what's coming to them. Promise you. I would exhort you to be on the better side of the two. <coughs> but those who hate him, he repays to their face with destruction. He will not hesitate to repay to the face the one who hates him. <laughs> I know. You didn't know that was in your Bible. Well, there it is. So keep the commandments and statutes and ordinances that I am giving you to follow this day. These are the vows. These next words are God's vows. This is his marriage vows, his covenant vows. If you listen to the ordinances and keep, and keep them carefully, then the Lord your God will keep his barith and his hased that he swore to your fathers. He swore. He will love you and will bless you and will multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the produce of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the young of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. In the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, you will be blessed above all people among you. There will be no barren man or woman or livestock. You'll be fruitful in every way you could possibly imagine being fruitful. Keep the covenant. And you know what they did? <laughs> they ran right out of there and said, uh-uh, we're doing it our way. We got a better way. One of the things that's unique about this word covenant, barith, is it comes from uh, one of the, if you look up the entomology of it, it goes back into another Hebrew word that is bawa. And bawa is the word that is in, used in Genesis 1.1 where God created the heavens and the earth, and God bawa the heavens and the earth. Part of the root of the word covenant is in God cutting out creation for you. Covenant is the cut where blood flows, and part of that is the cut where God created with his, with his divine utensils, he created the heavens and the earth. He cut the heavens and the earth for you. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 15, it says, Therefore Christ is the, man, the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the, promise, the promised eternal inheritance. 
now that he has died to redeem them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we all know, if you've read the other half of the Old Testament, you know that Israel kind of messed it up. Not just kind of, they messed it up, like professional messed it up. Over and over, repetitive, so much so that God actually divorced his people. And I'm not getting into that, but Jeremiah says, I have given Israel a divorce. God divorced Israel. And he treated them, as, in, in fact, it says in Jeremiah chapter 33, it says, that, or in Jeremiah chapter 31, it says that I loved them as if I was their covenant husband. And they committed adultery on me. God's pretty sensitive to spiritual adultery. And I wonder how often we do that. It looks like a glowing screen sometimes. The word covenant here would be translated into barith, but notice that we're getting the alliance aspect of this, that Christ is a mediator of a new covenant. There's an, there's an allegiance, there's an alliance there, there's an eterni eternality to it. There's an infinity to it because now Christ, who can never die, is the one that mediates this covenant. That is so important. We don't have anything that, we can't even use the word forever. We use it all the time. It's a God word. You shouldn't use it. You hear me say it. Even people walk up to me, ah, oh, Pastor Steve, da, 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 forever. I know that's a God word, but I really mean it. I'm like, you can't, you can't really mean it. That's the point. Forever, ever, always, all the time. These are God words. We, we really shouldn't throw this stuff around. The next one in there, you see that we were called. This is the word chosen. You, you were called. You weren't the one that chose God. God chose you. This is really radical because God didn't need us. He wasn't up in heaven like, man, I, I got no minions. How am I going to eat? I ain't got no workers. I ain't got... God didn't need anything. He didn't need anyone or anything. He chose you. He chose you because he loved you. And he loves you because he loves you, not because you're lovely. And how many people find out Jesus chose me? He died for me. He wants to forgive me. He wants to be in relationship with me. He wants to be in covenant with me. Man, I'll get to that 20 years. Right now I'm sowing my wild oats. You know, I'll come back around. You know, when life, when life, when it gets important, I'll do that covenant stuff with Jesus. You know, I'll join a church in my 30s or 40s or 50s or maybe. Maybe I'll just do online church. That way I don't have to put on clothes. Called. He chose you. He invited you. He summoned you into this relationship with him, this covenant relationship. The next word was promised inheritance. There is something that is a benefit for you being in the family of God. If you were in the family of Bill Gates, there would be a benefit. You probably wouldn't have to worry about going somewhere wondering if you could afford it. If you're Bill Gates' kid and you walk in somewhere and you say, hey, Bill Gates' kid, they're going to say, what would you like? You just go ahead and point. We'll give you anything you want. We'll just send the bill to dad. There's an inheritance that we have in this covenant that many of us don't understand. Part of that inheritance is divine health. 
And, and I know we don't want to talk about that in some church circles because now we're going to get into the spiritual stuff. And I don't know. Now, I just want to know that I get to go to heaven later. Oh, my Lord, if that was the only benefit, as great as that would be, then it wouldn't be much of an inheritance because Jesus has already died. The inheritance should be now, today, active. He's already died. We have the inheritance now. It's not after you die. That's how most people interpret the New Testament. Well, after I die, I'll go to heaven, and then I'll be rich, and then I won't be sick, and then I won't. What in the world good is it going to do you in heaven? It's like how many people, I talk to them about the armor of God. You should put on the whole armor of God. Yeah, you know, in heaven, that's what we're all going to look like. Why do you need a sword in heaven? Why do you need a shield in heaven? Why do you need a helmet in heaven? Who's coming after you? You need it here and now. This is the place that you need that inherited armor of God. You need prosperity now. You don't need it then. You need health now. You don't need it then. You need your inheritance now because this life requires the inheritance that Jesus died to give you. And then redemption. The, the thing about redemption is that what redeeming something does is it doesn't just buy it back. Like someone stole your car. Like some, while we're in here, some, some scoundrel comes and they break into my truck and they hotwire it and they drive off. And then three weeks later, they call me. The police department calls me. Steve, we got your truck. Great. Awesome. You just need to come pick it up. Okay, I'll go redeem it from the lot. It's actually called that. If it's in an impound lot, you go and redeem it from the impound lot. And I go redeem my truck with the broken window and they decided to, to run it through 14 cornfields and they had a dog in the back seat and it pooped all over the place and they, yay, redeem my truck. A lot of people think that's what Jesus did. Like you're broke and, and jacked up and your life is messed up and your finances and your health and your marriage and everything's messed up and God just brought you in. And now you're still super jacked up and super messed up and broken and and. But now you're part of God's family. No, the, the word redemption actually means that you bring it back better than it was at the start. Amen. This would be the same thing as if I'm driving through Texas on my way to Kansas, God bless them, and I look out in the prairie over there and there's a 69 Camaro convertible SS. I'm like, baby, that's the one. That's the one I want with the stripes on it. And I'm like, that's it. And it's been sitting out in this field for 30 years. And it is messed up. Messed up. But I buy it. And the first thing I do after I buy it is I take it down to Sweetwood's in Forreston. And Sweetwood is a professional car restorer. And he's going to put it in an LT something, because it's going to be fast when I get it. And it's going to have a brand new sound system so I can have Bluetooth. So when I'm going 120, I don't have to be on my hands device. And so I can text with my voice instead of texting and freaking everybody out in my truck while I'm driving. Amen. It's a blessing for all the people that have driven with me. I'm going to get my 69 Camaro way better than it was even the day they built it. Because when they built it, it had a carburetor. Those suck. You got to choke them, choke them and all that kind of stuff. And then they get, yeah, I, then you got to take them to Jeff and fix them because your generator won't run because stinking gas today isn't real gas. It's made out of corn. And so then it turns it cornbread inside the engines. And what, what is that all about? What? Can we just get some gas? 
No, I'm going to get it redeemed. It's going to have fuel injection, and it's going to, it's going to have an upgraded stereo system. And I'm going to boo, 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 and it's going to be awesome. I'm going to go fast, and I'm not going to have all that old-fashioned stuff that's going to hold me back. It's going to be redeemed back better than it was when it was built. That's you. Amen. That's you. Amen. And then in uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 8a, and then 9b. Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry just as the covenant he mediates is better and is founded on better promises. You have better than any Jew ever had. You have better than Moses. You have better than Abraham. You have better than Solomon. Anybody that you can think of back there that lived in the covenant, that had all the benefits in the Old Testament, you have a better covenant under better promises mediated by a better mediator. Jesus shed blood for you to have that. For if that first covenant had been without fault, no place would have been sought for a second. What? There was a fault in the first covenant? Does anybody know what the fault was? It wasn't God, and it wasn't the vows. It was the other side. So you know what God did to fix it? God the Father made a covenant with God the Son. So now you have a covenant with God on both sides. There is no fault. So as faulty as you might be, you get the covenant based upon Jesus. You don't get the covenant based upon you. The old covenant, you messed up, you, you did good, you got good. You did bad, you got bad. In the new covenant, you do bad, Jesus pays for it. Now some people are like, woohoo! Headed to the bar after church. And do me some bad, since nobody's paying for it. Really? You'd do that to Jesus. Really? You'd stand at the cross, watching him bleed and die for you, struggle for every breath. And you just take a rock and like, hey, take that one too, because I'm going to go party later. I didn't really like that anyway. Live my own life. Thanks for paying for my sins. Peace out. Really? I can't do that. I can't live my life that way. Knowing that Jesus paid for my sins compels me to holiness doesn't give me a reason to be unholy. But God, but God, but God, but God found fault with the people because they did not abide by his covenant. So he had to start a new one, new mediator, new covenant. The concepts of covenant is central to the Bible. From the covenant God made with Abraham to the new covenant established through Jesus Christ, in each case, God graciously offers to be in a relationship with his people. And he expects them to respond in obedience and allegiance and faithfulness. 
When, I, when Kay and I did our vows one to another, we both had expectations. And that's not wrong. Covenants are only as strong as the character of the one making the covenant. How strong is God's character? Oh Lord, it says in Nehemiah, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, who keeps his barith of hased with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is Nehemiah crying out because all of Israel was in, they, this was the, during the diaspora, which was, means the, they were all spread out all over the whole world. They were in captivity. They were in Babylon. They'd lost their land. They'd lost their temple. They'd lost everything because they couldn't live in covenant with God. And Nehemiah cries out, oh God, he knew the character of God, the one who is Barith Hasid. And you know what Nehemiah did? Nehemiah built the walls. He leaned into the covenant God, and he got the benefits of that covenant God. And this was a thousand years after the Exodus and 1,500 years after his covenant with Moses. These are some of the keys, characteristics of covenant relationships. The first one is mutual commitment. Both parties in the covenant make promises, which we call vows, to each other. Yahweh promises to be his people's God, that's his promise to you, to provide for you, to protect you, and to forgive your sins. You, the respondent, his people, in turn promise to worship him alone, no other gods before you, to obey his laws, to love him and others as he loves them, and to advance the gospel. You agree, I get it, I'll do the great commission. I'm in covenant with you. If you're not doing the Great Commission, maybe you're not in covenant. Part of the Great Commission is going to all the world and make disciples. Make disciples. If you are not discipling someone, you are not doing the Great Commission. If you are not in discipleship yourself, you haven't even set yourself up for the Great Commission. Hey, hey, amen. Uh-uh. Grace and responsibility. Covenants are not self-serving contracts. That's a contract. I'm going to take from you the best of you, and I'll give you the best of me. Contract is, you're really good at that, so I want it. Covenant is, God is really good at everything. You stink at everything. He's just going to give you everything because he's God. That's covenant. Covenant is serving the one that you're going into covenant with more than you're going to serve yourself. Covenants are not self-serving contracts. They are based on God's grace, which means that he offers covenant to us unmeritedly. That's the word for grace. It's not by your performance. Not because we deserve it. <laughs> you know what you deserve? Yeah, we know. He loves us because he loves us. That's Deuteronomy 7, 8. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. You can't make him unlove you. You can't make him love you more. However, this grace does not nullify our responsibility and accountability to God and to others. Hased has an allegiance factor and a loyalty factor. 
God is allegiant and loyal to you for the rest of your life. He will never pull back the covenant, but you can walk away from it. Another factor is community and transformation. The new covenant is not just about individual relationships with God. You know how many times I hear this and it, it grates on me like fingernails on a chalkboard. Well, it's just all about your personal relationship with God. Yes, but your personal relationship with God is lived out next to my personal relationship with God. We call that community. It's not just about you. And if you've come to church and, you, and it's just about you, then please hang out until you figure out there's this other part where it's not just about you. It's also about forming a community of people bound together by their shared commitment to God. This community is what's called the ecclesia and is called to be a light to the world, reflecting God's hased and justice in all aspects of life. Being in a covenant, a barith. Being a covenant people means living out the implications of this special relationship with God. It means living with a sense of gratitude. What did we just do Thursday? Ate turkey. Missed it. Living with a sense of gratitude for God's grace, a commitment to obey his commandments, and a desire to share his loving kindness, said with others. It also means being willing to hold one another accountable and seek forgiveness when we fall short. Did you know that's in there? Hold one another accountable. In a covenant, I can actually come up to you and say, hey, you're doing something outside of the covenant. In a contract, I better shut up because you're going to get mad and quit. You, you know what I'm talking about. That's Matthew 18. That's part of the ecclesia. The ecclesia is we go to one another. When we see our brother sinning a sin, we go to our brother and we let him know. You can't live that way. And we correct them. You know, there's correction in adult relationships. This is why most people don't actually have very many adult relationships. They think they're done raising kids, they're done being corrected or giving correction. Nope. Welcome to the New Testament. In a world that is often characterized by individualism, self-interest, and broken promises, Christians are called to be set apart, a holy people who are united in their covenant with God. This barith is not just a set of rules or rituals. It is a way of life rooted in love. Man. Rooted in grace. Rooted in mutual commitment. By living out the new barith, Christians can be the imagers of God in the world and a reflection of Christ's character, chased, for all of us to see. The world needs to see the character of Christ, and the only way they're going to see it is through and in you. In Hebrews 13, and in 2 Corinthians, whoops, last slide. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal Barith, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you equip you. He's the one that equips you for this covenant living. Equips you with every good thing to do his will. It's his will for you to be a covenant person. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it says, and he, Jesus, 
has qualified us as ministers of a new, he did the qualification as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. If you're going to go beat someone over the head with all the rules of the new covenant, then you're going to kill them. But if you bring the spirit of God in correction, in commitment, in accountability, in, in love and in grace, if you bring the spirit of God into all those things, you will bring life. Rules kill. The spirit gives life. Our founding fathers knew liberty came from covenant allegiance with God, his word, and his people. The church fathers knew that liberty came from covenant allegiance with God, his word, and his people. Participation in the great awakening will require the beloved to live in covenant allegiance with God, his word, and his people. Is anybody going into the Great Awakening with me? Anybody else? <laughs> Covenant people are going to go into the Great Awakening. It's not going to be churchianity. It's going to be covenant. Please rise. I'd like to bless you. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of his life-changing word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the beloved family of God, and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.